Hi folks, Steve here. Welcome to another episode of the Natural Curiosity Project. When I started this podcast about three years ago, I had one goal in mind, to tell stories to people about things going on in the world that I thought were interesting and that I thought others might find interesting as well. I didn't have a specific audience in mind. I didn't target a particular profession or age group or demographic segment, even though every resource I read, listened to, or watched about producing a successful podcast told me to do exactly that. Part of the reason was simple. I wasn't doing this as a job. I already had one of those, so I was less focused on gaining a large audience than others might be. I did it because I believed the stories I was going to tell were important, and I wanted to give people the opportunity to hear them. But it's more than that. I've always believed that one of the most important personal and professional survival and growth skills that we have is curiosity. Why? Because curiosity is the radical opposite of complacency, and complacency is a very dangerous state of mind. It causes companies to fail, and it causes individuals to become irrelevant. And as many companies have discovered, coming back from a position of irrelevance is a tough battle to fight. It rarely ends well. I'm curious because I'm curious. It's part of who I am. I've been this way since I was a kid. Eleanor Roosevelt once said that the cure for boredom is curiosity. There is no cure for curiosity. <laughs> I agree with that. It's like muscle mass. If we don't exercise it regularly, it can fade away and become one of those skills that we used to have. And sooner or later, the lack of it can hurt us. So I wanted to do something about that. When I started the Natural Curiosity Project, I had no idea what I was doing. I had done a lot of work in film and video, so I knew my way around the media world. But podcasts were a whole new thing for me. I knew what I wanted to accomplish, and I knew that as a storyteller, podcasts were the natural medium to deliver them. So I started cranking out episodes. I talked about swamps and bogs. I talked about the inherent nature of leadership. I talked about my love affair with fungi. And I talked about lichens and forests and trees and bioluminescence and books and authors that I love. The only thing that any one episode had in common with the ones surrounding it was that they all came from a place of curiosity. Now, somewhere along the way, as the episodes went out and the feedback came in, I began to realize that there are a lot of people out there who think the way I do, people who understand the value of accumulating knowledge just for the sake of accumulating knowledge. Said another way, they're curious people. I began to hear from them, many of them professors and teachers who use my podcast in their classrooms. And I began to get messages from students thanking me for telling them about things that they'd never heard of before and for giving them topics for school papers. Well, as you can imagine, this all made me happy because it meant that I was, in my own little way, like Don Quixote, tilting at his imaginary windmill monsters, inoculating people with a vaccine against complacency. Now, the other thing that happened along the way was that I began to create episodes about people who had an interesting story to tell. One of my favorite writers is a guy most people have never heard of. His name is Lauren Isley. I've talked about him a few times in this podcast. In one of his books, one of the three or four books that made me want to be a writer, 
he told a story about taking the train from New York to Philadelphia. This quote is from Lauren's autobiography, All the Strange Hours. In the fall of 1936, I belatedly entered a crowded coach in New York. The train was an early morning express to Philadelphia, and what I had been doing in New York the previous day I no longer remember. The crowded car I do remember because there was only one seat left, and it was clearly evident why everyone who had boarded before me had chosen to sit elsewhere. The vacant seat was beside a huge and powerful man who seemed slumped in a drunken stupor. I was tired, I had once lived among rough company, and I had no intention of standing timidly in the aisle. The man did not look quarrelsome, just asleep. I sat down and minded my own business. Eventually, the conductor made his way down the length of the coach to our seats. I proceeded to yield up my ticket. Just as I was expecting the giant on my right to be nudged awake, he straightened up, whipped out his ticket, and took on a sharp alertness, so sharp, in fact, that I immediately developed the uncanny feeling that he had been holding that particular seat with a show of false drunkenness until the right party had taken it. When the conductor was gone, the big man turned to me with the glimmer of amusement in his eyes. Stranger, he appealed, before I could return to my book, tell me a story. In all the years since, I have never once been addressed by that westernism stranger on a New York train, and never again upon the Pennsylvania Railroad has anyone asked me like a pleading child for a story. The man's eyes were a deep, fathomless blue with the serenity that only enormous physical power can give. People on trains out of New York tend to hide in their own thoughts. With this man, it was impossible. I smiled back at him. You look at me, I said, running an eye over his powerful frame, as if you were the one to be telling me a story. I'm just an ordinary guy, but you, you look as if you've been places. Stranger, tell me a story. What a quote, and what a great way to start a conversation with someone. Well, lots of people agreed to tell me their story for the Natural Curiosity Project, and what I realized was that everybody has a story to tell. My goal was to get people to share them. Well, share they did. David Betchkel told me about taking a dog team into the backcountry of Denali National Park in Alaska to place audio recorders in various places so that he could track the movements of wildlife over very long periods of time. Phil Brown, Lang Elliott, Dick Todd, T-Rex Beverly, Roger Boughton, and Ben Link Collins told me about recording the sounds of the natural world. Bob Verlack, one of my oldest friends and a successful actor and writer, told me how to read movie credits. Ken Sato helped me explore the lost art of letter writing. Pete Mulvihill wove together history, engineering, firefighting, and a bunch of other topics to help me explore the meaning of research and truth and credibility and trust. Danny Olusegun Ojidokun, who designs my book covers from his home in Nigeria, talked about platform companies. Tim Washer spoke passionately about the role of humor in the workplace. My cousin Michael told me about a way to save the lives of four billion people on the planet, and Chris Boyer told me about his extraordinary role as the coordinator of global search and rescue activities. 
These are all people with a story to tell. What I found so interesting every time I met one of these people and heard their story was a couple of things. First, just like me, the professional arc they followed to get where they are is about as linear as a corkscrew. None of them woke up one day and said, I'm going to be a whatever they became. All of them arrived at their careers along a circuitous, nonlinear path, one in which they followed curiosity and led with passion to reach a place where they're happy because they make a difference in the world. And that brings me to Mary Sullivan. I met Mary in a roundabout way, and boy, am I glad I did. She's one of those people who started out planning to do one thing, but professionally ended up on the other side of the planet. You've probably never heard of her, but I guarantee you know her work. I'll let her tell you her story, and I'll be back in a minute. I grew up in Maryland in a small town. My dad died when I was young, so I grew up with my mom. My brother and sister were a lot older than me. and. We were middle class, didn't have a ton of money. You know, she was a bowling alley cook and didn't make a ton of money. In fact, I remember seeing her paycheck one time and wondering whether she was doing something on the side because I had no idea how we were as fortunate as we were given her paycheck. But I wanted to be something in the medical field. I got a job with a dentist. I started out as a receptionist and ended up being trained as a dental assistant I worked for the chief of surgery at one of the hospitals close by us, like doing an internship. I did an internship at a veterinary clinic. I went to uh, Loyola undergrad and for the first couple of years was really focused on biology and did really, really well. But I got to the third year when I was getting ready to take the MCATs and kind of panicked because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. If I wanted to be a veterinarian or a surgeon, the amount of school that was ahead of me and knowing that I had like pennies in my pocket, that didn't seem like a smart move to to go that path. So I panicked and I started looking around, realizing I didn't know anything other than biology. And I ended up deciding on law school because the entrance exam was logic, reasoning, and reading, and I figured I could do those things. Anything else required me to know something. It should be obvious to you that Mary's selling herself short here, but as you can see, this is where the nonlinearity begins. You know what else begins here? A message that says that your academic background is less important than passion and drive and curiosity, as you're going to see. Here's Mary again. I applied to Georgetown, and I often joke that I think I got in simply because they had never had a straight A bio major apply to law school. They were all poli sci and, you know, English majors. And it was like a woman and she's a bio major that didn't fail out. Wow. We got to have her. So I went to law school in those days. Unlike today, I, I'm not sure if I applied to more than one school. I, I think undergrad, i Maybe I applied to two, Loyola and one other. Law school, I may have only applied to Georgetown, maybe one other. So got into Georgetown. I started interviewing there, like everybody else, my second year, you know, in DC and in New York. But I didn't want to do administrative law, which was big in DC. And everybody that I interviewed with in New York wanted me to do patent work, which I really didn't want to do. So I decided that was the time for me 
to get out of the area that I'd always been in. And I looked for California firms, but by the time I made this change, most of those had come and gone. But there was a firm from Hawaii. And so I went in to interview with them. To my amazement, got a job offer and went to Hawaii for the summer and did a summer internship at Cage Shetty Fleming and Wright. And that convinced me that there was life off the East Coast. I ended up deciding not to go back. I wanted to do corporate law and I thought the opportunities in LA were better. So I ended up working at a firm called Mitchell Silverberg and up. And I was in their corporate department, but they had a huge entertainment practice, uh, motion picture, television, and music at the time. And I ended up doing a lot of film financing work, mostly representing banks. But that let me see a lot of different aspects of entertainment. The other thing that the corporate department there did, which was great, it wasn't, you know, I, I had friends that went and worked for some of the biggest law firms, but they were always sort of, for the first four years, stuck in the back room doing research. And doing research really didn't appeal to Mary. What she wanted to do was something where she could actually have a sense of tangible accomplishment, the ability to make a difference. And she got it in the most unusual way. At Mitchell, we had a lot of small and medium-sized clients. And I loved working with them because you're working with the guy who runs the company. And I was sort of like an inside-outside general counsel. And it provided not only a wonderful opportunity to work with those clients and help shape the business and help them solve problems, it taught me a lot because every time an issue would come up, I'd have to go talk to a litigator. I'd have to go talk to a labor person or a tax person or someone that had an area of expertise, which allowed me to pull from all of those things. Long story short, I left Mitchell to start a small boutique after I became partner at Mitchell. And I thought I was going to continue to do corporate there, but I didn't like it as much. You know, even though I was very much of a hands-on, did a lot of my own work, I really missed the camaraderie that I had at Mitchell. And so I started doing a lot more of the entertainment stuff. And that's when I realized I was a really senior lawyer in the entertainment industry. So I could do the most complicated deals where you made up the rules and I couldn't do the simplest deals. I had no idea what a standard first time actor deal was. I didn't know all the typical entertainment stuff which meant that I developed an expertise in areas that were new at the time, animation stuff, because the rules were different. And I could, I could work in that world and reality, which is what ultimately had me meeting Mike. What ultimately had her meeting Mike. Now, you're going to learn more about Mike in a minute, but for now, here's what you need to know. One day, while sitting at her desk, Mary's phone rang, and she, of course, answered it. The conversation went something like this, according to the entry on Mike's Facebook page about how he met Mary. Hello, this is Mary. Mary Sullivan? Yes. You answer your own phone? Sometimes. I was told you were a high-profile Hollywood attorney. I figured you might have a receptionist. She's out to lunch. Who's this? My name's Mike. I host a TV show on the Discovery Channel called Dirty Jobs. Lovely. I don't think I've ever heard of it. You will. It's going to be a big hit. Well, congratulations in advance. What can I do for you? I need a lawyer. How much do you charge? Are you in a bathroom? Of course not. I would never call you from a bathroom. Well, where are you? I'm in a sewer. 
Technically, I think that's a bathroom. Well, maybe, but trust me, you don't want to take a bath in here. What are you doing in a sewer? Well, at the moment, I'm eating a ham sandwich and talking to you, but for the rest of the day, I'm working as an apprentice for a guy who cleans grease traps and septic tanks. You're eating lunch in a sewer? Look, I can eat anywhere. Look, my contract's a mess and I need some help. Can we meet? Well, who's your agent? I don't have one. Who's your manager? I don't have one. How did you get the job? It's a long story. Why don't I fly to L.A. and tell you all about it in person? And that, as they say, was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Mike ended up calling me from a grease trap, and I, for some reason, answered my own phone that day. And he just kept talking, wouldn't stop talking, desperate to get somebody to come on and help. And it was unusual because most of the clients that I had at that time had agents and managers and publicists, and he had none of those things. So I'm thinking, okay, so I got a guy who has no representation on discovery, who I don't think I had done a deal with at those days, because that was the very early days of reality. But I ended up taking, taking him on and spent the next two years taking him around, trying to get him to hire people. Because all my people had people, they had agents and managers, and he didn't. And so let's just say I failed miserably at my job. And after a few years, decided that I couldn't run a law firm and run his business. So I ended up leaving and helping him to grow whatever the Mike business is these, these days, as well as run the foundation. Mary Sullivan runs an organization called Micro Works. And yes, it's the same Micro who does the TV show Dirty Jobs. But we're not going to talk much about Mike in this episode. I want to talk about Mary because she's the kind of person I love to have on this program. She's scary smart, has one of those complicated jobs that she pretty much had to design as it evolved. You know, the famous line about fixing the train while it's rolling down the track, that comes to mind here. She works with really interesting people in a very interesting field, and she's extremely curious. I know from my conversations with her that she's not afraid to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. How could she not be a curious person when the show she helps to produce and the foundation she runs has a star who eats a ham sandwich for lunch in the smelly depths of a sewer? We ended up being a really good pair to work together because neither one of us is normal, truth be told. When I met him, didn't have an agent, didn't have a manager, didn't have a publicist. I'm not even sure he had a competent accountant at the time. He was like out, you know, doing his own deals. I was a corporate lawyer that ended up through a set of weird circumstances being in the entertainment industry. So in my mind, I I look at things like a business. And so the entertainment world is kind of strange because you have talent whose lives are often run by people that don't work exclusively for them. And so when Mike and I met, I was just trying to figure out how do I guide him? How do, you know, how do we work together? And so I didn't know what was normal. And so I just did things in a way that seemed to make sense for him and that made sense to my brain, even though it wasn't really normal for the industry. And that worked out, that worked out well, I think. And I don't know that it would have worked if he would have had an agent or a manager or somebody that knew what the heck they were doing. The fact that I had no idea opened up the world of possibility for things that you do. We would take on really small things initially, things where we could really have an impact. 
And there it is. Once again, Mary's selling herself short here. But there's some truth in what she's saying. Leadership and management journals for a few years now have been posting a growing number of articles about the rise of the importance of corporate generalists, that is, people who have broad knowledge across many disciplines rather than a singular deep focus on one area. This is because wide-angle people, like Mary, view the world from a wide perspective, from multiple angles, from different points of view. That's one of the qualities that leads to innovation and rapid and active problem-solving and collaboration and effective scenario planning and strategy development. But it doesn't stand alone. We also, of course, need the specialists, the people who bring very specific skills to the challenge. It takes both. If you've listened to other episodes in this program, you know that I often talk about the qualities of good leadership. Honesty, transparency, truth, collaboration, curiosity, passion, and approaching problems from different points of view to get the wide-angle view that's so important. Mary won't admit it, but what she's exhibiting in the way she approaches her job is the essence of effective, compassionate leadership. It's no wonder that the foundation she runs, which grants tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships to people who want to learn a skill and get a job in the trades, is extremely successful. Yes, I know, it has Mike Rowe's name associated with it, so how could it possibly not do well? But truthfully, the foundation and Mike do well because of Mary, and Mike will be the first person to tell you that. One of the most common signs of complacency is a leader or an organization that's unwilling to try different approaches to achieving their goals. That's nice, but you see, that's not how we do things here, is the call of the complacent organization. For Mike and Mary, complacency isn't even part of their vocabulary. They broke all the rules. Mary says it's because she didn't know what she was doing. Now, personally, I don't believe that, but even if it's true, I'd call it an advantage because neither she nor Mike have ever approached anything they do by first checking the rule book. For example, here's Mary talking about one of their programs, Returning the Favor. When we started with Returning the Favor, basically it was, let's go out, let's find people who are doing something nice in their community. We'll do something nice for them. We'll throw them a surprise party or whatever. And we said, sounds really earnest, pass. Because in our heads, we're thinking violins, it's going to be, they're going to push you to cry. It was just, it sounded made up. And they kept pushing. And so we finally met with the, with the producer and we said, look, it sounds like a great show, but we don't want it to be earnest. So if you will think of it like the making of a feel-good show, as opposed to a feel-good show, that means I want to meet the crew. I want the fans who are watching the show to feel like they're on the journey finding these people with us. And they, of course, said yes, because they're trying to talk us into doing it. And, and a couple of times you could see it creep into the area where they're trying to produce it a little too much. And we'd, we'd pull them back and you're trying to hide everything and make it look perfect and shiny. And the funniest stuff is often the, the things you didn't plan for. And I think people appreciate that now. And I think now more than ever with, with YouTube, with the fact that we're all walking around with you know an iPhone filming stuff, you're seeing things very raw. And so when you look at something in the reality space that's too produced, it feels fake. 
And fake is one thing that Mike Rowe and everything that he and Mary do is not. Just think about this for a minute. When a show is in production, the number of moving parts required to keep the media machine running is overwhelming. For every on-camera person that the audience sees, there may be as many as 40 people off-camera doing really important work. So you can imagine, the producers and directors try to control every possible variable to make sure that the audience doesn't see, as Mary likes to say, how the sausage is made. But as Mary also says, when things are overproduced, they feel fake. Because we're always fighting with the production companies because, again, we're, they're going against their nature to show how the sausage is made. And we were shooting a show up in, it was in Northern California, and it was at a school, it was in a poor district, just trying to get clearances and pulling it together was just a nightmare. And the guy had no interest in being filmed. So they couldn't get releases. Kids were forgetting to bring them. Nobody, you know, they're half signed. And the producers are like yanking out their hair. At the end, they even forgot to cover the gift that we were giving. So the reveal got blown. I mean, it was just, it was awful. And uh, he walked out. And this is like probably the second or third episode we shot. And there's this young producer really anxious to, you know, do a good job, right? And so Mike's doing his closing stand-up, And he's like, well... That went uh, not as expected. We screwed this up. We screwed that up. We screwed this up. But hey, all's well that ends well. They're playing music. Everybody's eating. Everybody's happy. And the producer looks at him and he goes, that's fantastic, Mike. Now, you think you could just do it one more time and not make it sound like we screwed everything up? And Mike looks at him and he goes, no, you might actually use that. And Mike literally walks off and we had them cut that in. That is actually the end of the episode <laughs> because... We said you have to have a behind-the-scenes camera shooting everything. And why? Because it makes the experience spontaneous, real, human, normal, approachable, and inclusive. It makes the audience feel as if they're part of the show. And it makes Mike, the main on-camera personality, seem like a real person, which of course he is. Mike will sit there and fight with the producers on camera, like joking around. We There's a guy, Jacob, on returning the favor, and he's just so used to to instructing things and, you know, trying to, he's looking into his little, you know, behind the scenes camera and telling people where to go. And Mike was just constantly giving Jacob a hard time. Jacob used to schedule the behind the scenes. We're like, do you understand what behind the scenes means? (laughs) You can't schedule it. (laughs) I love that. It's kind of like trying to schedule outtakes. I want to shift gears now and talk about the other side of Mary Sullivan. When she isn't trying to corral Mike, she's running the foundation Micro Works. It came into being, well, here, I'll let Mary tell you. We started the foundation. It really grew out out of dirty jobs. Mike had had a chance to travel the country and work with people who were keeping civilized life possible for the rest of us. But what he noticed was that there were help wanted signs, you know, at a time when you didn't expect to see help wanted signs. And he realized that there was an aversion to doing some of these jobs. They had fallen out of favor. And and that probably happened, again, unintended consequence of things like pushing college. We're not, as some might say, if you take a quick glance at at the foundation, we're not anti-college whatsoever. You know, we're both products of 
a four-year degree or more in my case. But the unintended consequence of pushing college, like you have to have it or you're a failure, caused people to stop pursuing the vocational side of things. What, what happens? They then take vocational arts, they took the arts out of it, you know, and it became Votech. And then what did they do? They take Votech out of high school and put it into a whole separate school. Of course, kids started to believe that skilled trades were unimportant or not a good thing for them to pursue because we did almost everything we could to convince them that if they went that path, they were a loser. It was just a little insane. So we just, you know, like the pendulum swinging a little too far in one direction. When Mike and I were talking, it was, what can we do? And he had a certain amount of stature around, you know, dirty jobs and and notoriety. So we set up the foundation. And to be honest, when we first set it up, we weren't entirely sure what we were going to do with it. So we started it in, I think, 2008. And we had the idea of we'll give money to some organizations like Skills USA and and Future Farmers of America, I mean, other organizations, because we're small, that are doing good things. One of the great myths, or maybe it's a legend, about the world of work is that most people pick a field when they're young, study that field in university, and then get a job in that field where they work for the rest of their careers. Nope. With the exception of people who get technical degrees in fields like engineering or architecture, most people aren't actually employed in the field they studied. In fact, the numbers are surprising. According to a 2020 article in the Washington Post, only 27% of people work in the field they studied. And you know what? That's okay. Just ask Mary. College can happen almost any time. When I went to school, it wasn't as expensive as it is now. And and the reason we started the foundation is we wanted to support kids and their families who wanted to pursue that alternative, you know, to, to pursue skilled trades, to make it cool again, for lack of a better word, and to show them that there are opportunities. But um, you can go to college anytime. Go out, learn a skill, then go to college if you want. You've earned some money then, you've got some real world experience. And the other thing that's interesting is most people think of it as a job. But a lot of people that I know in the industry have taken whatever skill it is, they've turned it into a business. And that business has led to them in the entrepreneurial side to be much better off. So they'll often say, oh, you know, look at what you can make if you're a, you know, a lawyer versus what you make if you're a plumber look at the cost of school, you know, they'll do all that analysis, but they don't look at the guy who becomes the plumber, then starts his own plumbing business. And now, now he franchises is out. You can grow that side and grow it from a skill as opposed to the theoretical. So let me pause here for a second and tell you a little bit about this foundation because the work they do is so important. You've heard me say on several occasions in other episodes of this podcast that we are long overdue for a renaissance in the trades in the United States. I do a lot of work overseas, as many of you know, and in most of these places, going to school to learn a skilled trade is seen as a serious professional opportunity. It's on par with getting a college degree. And yet, many people in the U.S. view the trades as 
what you do if you can't get into college. You know, he couldn't cut it in college, so he became a plumber. That is ludicrous. Skilled tradespeople are every bit as important, every bit as integral to the success of a country as the knowledge workers are. Look, of course we need people to write the software that makes a complicated machine work properly. But once it's programmed, that machine also has to be physically installed and connected to the network that'll make it work in concert with the other machines in the plant. It has to be routinely monitored, adjusted, tweaked, maintained, troubleshot, and repaired. It has to be programmed and connected to electrical and maybe hydraulics and perhaps water and constantly monitored for cybersecurity compliance. These tasks are all done by the skilled trades. So about the foundation. We are still very small. There's a handful of us in the company. We don't have an outside agent. We don't have an outside manager. We don't have an outside publicist. We do have some competent tax uh, and outside help. So, But we tend to do things internally and personal. We've got a really great team and they all are cut from the same cloth. You know, We would rather do fewer things and do them well and have a relationship and have a good time and work with people we like than to try to do a lot of things that we don't, which means that we end up doing a lot of things. We like people and we like being busy. (laughs) So poor Mike sometimes, I think we probably exhaust him. As Mary explained, as they were producing dirty jobs, Mike began to see help-wanted signs during a time when people were complaining about not being able to find a job. One of the reasons goes back to the belief that many people have about jobs in the trades being somehow inferior to so-called white-collar jobs. Or perhaps people would rather complain about not having a job than actually work. Whatever the case, Mary and Mike decided to do something about that. They started the foundation, MicroWorks, and while they weren't very big, they had one thing that other organizations didn't have. The real thing that we thought we could do that most foundations can't do is promotion. Because we had come to the conclusion that the reason people were not pursuing the trades, it was a will gap, not a skills gap. So we slowly started, and pretty much in everything Mike does, back then and up till now, if it's a commercial deal, we usually have some aspect, obviously in the entertainment side of things, posting on Facebook, There's a blend of things designed to try to highlight that there are really good opportunities. We did a a campaign once with a client called Hot Under the Blue Collar, where, again, this is in our fashion, but Mike, uh, with his best friend, Chuck, Chuck pulls a toilet around behind Mike, and Mike will reach in and pull out mythical poo, which are toilet paper rolls with Uh, a myth inside, and then he would have 60 to 90 seconds to debunk the myth. And it was like, there are no job opportunities for women in the trades. And, you know, he would spend a time debunking it. And it was so popular on Facebook. I remember people asking, like, why aren't you doing more of these? Like, they thought of it almost like an educational, like entertainment program. So we did a lot of that. And then they did this. It was probably around 2014 that we actually started offering scholarships with the assistance of an outside company that will help us manage it because you have to have somebody who's gathering all of the uh, applications and making sure that all the pieces are there. And then they'll 
send all of that to us. And then internally in the foundation, we go through all the applications. We usually have at least a couple of people that would review an application and score it. And so we've given away over $4 million in work ethic scholarship programs over the years. We gave away a million dollars last year. And obviously we've given other money away from the, in the foundation as well, but for work ethic scholarships, I think it's been about there. So we've helped probably 1,100 students to varying degrees in different trades. If you're not familiar with the amazing things that the foundation does, please head over to microworks.org and have a look. They've gifted more than $5 million to more than 1,000 people entering about 20 different skilled trades in 48 states. Go to the website, watch some of the videos, meet some of the scholarship recipients, read some of their success stories, and while you're there, read Mike's Sweat Pledge. It's a timeless message for the modern world. And it's important work that they're doing. If you don't believe me, Wait until the next time your furnace dies on a Sunday night in mid-January. That HVAC person that comes out to fix it might become your new best friend. As we got close to the end of the interview, I asked Mary if she had a message for kids who were coming out of high school and wrestling with what to do next. The message to most kids today that have no idea of what they want to do, first, you shouldn't when you're that 17, 18, your life's not over. You got plenty of time. Second, even though I was dead on sure that I knew what I was going to do, I obviously didn't. I went from being a bio major to running a small entertainment company and foundation. So really the advice is whatever you do, do it well, because what people are looking for, for me talking to employers and from being an employer, I want somebody that, that cares. Mary Sullivan, president of Micro Works. Thank you, Mary, and thanks, Mike, for all that you do. And for those of you who are Dirty Jobs fans, I'll let Mary have the last word here. Dirty Jobs went out of production in 2012. A lot of people don't know that because Discovery airs it so much and it is so evergreen that people just keep finding it and they think that it's new. So that's lovely. But Discovery wanted to do some more. We agreed to do that. And then the, as you would call it, the zombie apocalypse hit. So Mike ended up doing a very short run last summer that was a reunion show with his old crew where they basically traveled around and, you know, discussed some of the old shows. But Discovery wanted him to to do some others. So we have been out shooting since late March or early April. We've gone out catching jellyfish epoxying floors, rod busting, galvanizing, iguana control, roof vacuuming. You go up and you suck rocks off of the roof. Yeah, in Nashville, they apparently put rocks on the top of a roof in order to hold it down. And now because there's better technology or whatever, they need to go and and suck it off. So it's very similar to the dirty jobs that people will recognize, except Mike's a lot older. So Everything hurts now, as he would say. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. 
In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.